Welcome to the O'Reilly Data Show. I'm your host, Ben Lorica. This year marks the 10-year anniversary of Apache Hadoop. And on this episode, we talk with Hadoop's co-creator, University of Michigan computer science professor, Mike Caffarella. We go over the early days of Hadoop, but we also cover one of Mike's new projects, clearcutanalytics.com. It's a large-scale information extraction tool. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Welcome to the O'Reilly Data Show. I'm your host, Ben Lorica, here today with uh, Mike Caffarella, sometimes referred to as the Pete Best of Big Data. <laughs> Hi, Ben. How are you? So, uh, Mike, maybe we should start by talking a little bit about your background. Um, I noticed on your Wikipedia page you worked at TellMe, which was actually at the time a, a very uh, hot startup. Uh, yeah, I think this right. was in the era of maybe late 90s, early 2000s, right? Yeah, that's right. I, uh, I worked in uh, Silicon Valley for a few years then. I, my first job was a company called Marimba. Uh, which was a great place. Oh. It was a lot of people who had worked on Java at Sun Microsystems. Right. Kim, and then after Kim that, I, I worked at uh, Tell Me. Kim Police, right? Yeah, yeah, Kim Police. Yeah, she was, uh, she was great. Yeah. Oh, so you were, you basically, those were like the ex-Sun people who really were central to Java, right? Yeah, that's absolutely right. Yeah, um, you know, the, the technical people involved were like uh, Arthur Van Hoff um, uh, and Sammy Shaw and Jonathan Payne. Uh, were the guys who who had done that, and yeah, they had, they had all been working at Sun. I I think it was JavaSoft at the time that they were working there, though I'm not totally sure. Uh, but at some point, they left uh, to start Marimba. I think that was like '97 or so. So, how many years uh, did you work before you decide that you wanted to go get your PhD in computer science? So around 2001 or 2002, I decided that uh, research uh, sounded like a fun thing to do. So I, I left Tell Me at the time. Um, I worked for about a year for an old undergraduate advisor of mine doing some research to kind of uh, prepare my applications for grad school. And that's also the time when I started uh, working on uh, Nutch with Doug Cutting. So, how, so Nutch uh, was a project that was basically uh, incubated or created out of the Internet Archive, correct? Um, you know, the, the very original uh, Internet Archive supported the work for a while, and you know, Yahoo obviously had a huge hand in Nutch and then Hadoop as well. And, and you know, a lot of people contributed, but the, the very first people behind it were um, Overture, you know, also known as GoTo. I, could, I think they had just oh, become God. Overture at the time. They, they were the, sort of the first people very early on who were interested in Nutch. So, by the way, Mike, at that time, uh, what was the state just of open, the open source scene? I mean, was there, was there an Apache Foundation? Yeah, certainly there, were, there was an Apache Foundation, and you know, Linux obviously was huge. Um, but you know, search as a major kind of technically interesting topic was still only a few years old. So you know, um, the first sort of modern search engines were like Excite, InfoSeq, and then eventually Google. Um, where they all came in the sort of the 90s, I guess Excite was actually founded as early as 94. Um, but uh, you know, Google obviously in 98 very rapidly became kind of the most popular of all of them. And when we started Nutch in 02, uh, even then there was a feeling that there used to be a ton of diversity and excitement among search engines. And although Google was fantastic, there wasn't the same kind of diversity and uh, ease of access to the market. We kind of wanted to improve you know, lower the bar to making something interesting in the search engine space so the what the, what were you guys doing in in terms of your day jobs when you decided to take on nutch um doug was working as a consultant for a few companies and i was spending most of my days i working uh in a research lab you know, trying to get ready to go back for a phd program so you know uh, neither of us had traditional company jobs at the time so then at some point, I, I, from what I read, you guys were using Nutch at the Internet Archive, right? And then it, yep. uh, you, you were having problems scaling it. There were a lot of manual steps. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. So you know, the core thing with Nutch, so in the, in the time frame, sort of the first year of Nutch's existence, basically 2002 to 2003, um, we, we had you know, a good amount of success in building up the uh, the rudiments of the of the search engine. So we had the crawler, uh, the indexer, which was based substantially on Lucene. 
the the front end, the ranker, and so on. Our rank quality, we did. Um, I remember we did a few crude experiments at the time to try to evaluate how good we were in terms of ranking. We weren't quite as good as Google, but we were roughly comparable to um, uh, Akamai at the time. Or, excuse me, uh, Ink to Me at the time. Um, so, so we felt that was decent. But what was really holding us back was the scalability of the index construction. So uh, we were really held back by the fact we were doing it on just a single machine. Oh, and geez. so, yeah, so, so it, be- <laughs> it, be- it became clear we needed uh, more, more horsepower here. So I spent uh, roughly a summer uh, rewriting the whole indexing uh, framework so that it could be run in a distributed way. And at uh, this we- time, Mike, uh, who was using it besides you guys? You know, um, I were don't, you, were, was there a mailing list where you were getting Yeah, we, I, I don't totally know the answer to that. You know, we would often only discover users when something broke. And I do remember very clearly that um, the, the Chamber of Commerce for uh, Mitchell, South Dakota was a big user. <laughs> I, I, know, <laughs> I remember that this is where the Corn Palace is. If you go on like a road trip and you're, and you're around that area, everyone goes to the Corn Palace, which is some kind of convention center that you know, has corn all around it. Well, Mitchell like, had, uh, was a very early user of Nutch, and I had, for some reason, just visited the Corn Palace. So I was really impressed by this. Uh, but more seriously, I remember, I believe it was um, Oregon State was a user. You know, we, got, we got some small companies, some universities using it, but it certainly had not set the Internet on fire. Right, right, right. And, so and it, was, it was very useful in some technical areas, like the, the Internet Archive was starting to use it and some other people as well. Right, right. And then uh, at some point... Uh, Google started publishing papers. Right. So, so we spent about a summer working on um, this distributed indexing mechanism, and um, then I, I, we, you know, we finished it, and I felt pretty good about it. And then something like two hours later, um, we read the the GFS, the Google File System paper, and realized, boy, actually, that would be pretty handy. We we could really use that. So we threw out a chunk of it, uh, implemented a very you know early version of. Um, the ideas in that paper, which we called HDFS or the Hadoop Distributed File System. Then again, we felt good about ourselves. It was it was working. Then the MapReduce paper came out. We realized, oh boy, that would actually be a pretty good idea too. Uh, that's what we really need. And so we we rewrote things again to to start using our own implementation of MapReduce. So those papers you know, were really instrumental uh, in helping us out. So Google deserves kind of full credit for doing the work there. All, all the guys at Google who did that. So what was um, the what was this time frame? So you read the that, first that would, GFS paper and then the MapReduce paper and then how long before you had your own versions? You know, I I would say. And what year? By the way, what year was the the first? I think this is in the, this, yeah, this is in the the o three o four time frame. I can't remember exactly when the GFS paper came out, but I believe it was around that time. Um, and then you and, you had a working and, version a year later, or. Uh, you know, working for some definition of working, I would say within about six months, we probably had it working on a small cluster, though I don't know if we could have built a, a commercial scale search engine on top of it. Um, certainly for a couple years, we were you know piecing together machines, however we could, whether that was if the Internet Archive had some or we get them some uh, through other mechanisms. But it was only when Yahoo you know, took an interest in the project, like in 05, 06, uh, and really started investing an awful lot in you know, machines, people, and time that the, the project became so really the, industrial ready. At the at point the that point you're describing here, when you read the papers and implemented it, the whole thing was still called Nutch, right? So Hadoop wasn't separated yet. Yeah, that's absolutely right. It was all those, those uh, infrastructure components were still part of Nutch. And it only became clear, I'd say by 2005 or early 2006, that really there was a, a large and rapidly growing audience for the infrastructure components. And the search engine part, you know, people liked it, but it wasn't generating nearly the excitement that the other stuff was. You know, someone told me that this year is Hadoop's 10-year anniversary. So let's say it's 2005. Yeah, sure. <laughs> that sounds possible. Let's call it 2005. So, which brings me to a critical question that a mutual friend of ours, Chris Ray, wanted me to ask you. Why, okay. is, why is Hadoop written in Java? Why is it written in Java? Okay, that's a great question. Um, it may seem surprising because certainly um, a lot of other similar infrastructure is not. Um, our, we, Doug and I had a, a very kind of explicit conversation about this early on. And certainly our view was the greatest threat to the project was that it never gets done. That you know, the, the risk of it failing because there were too many bugs or 
we simply weren't productive enough was much greater than the risk that it would be perfect, but people would reject it because the performance wasn't quite there. So, you know, a lot of people write, write things in, in C to eke out the final uh, level of performance to get more control over memory management and so on. And, you know, that, that, was, a, that was a not obvious design decision, but you know, one that I remain happy with. I think if I were to make the decision again, the question would, in my mind, would not be C versus Java, but rather, should we go for an even higher level language? Right, um, right, right. Yeah. No, but it turns out actually uh, that decision influenced basically uh, the big data ecosystem, right? Because a lot of the follow-up projects were JVM language projects. Um, I think that is true. I don't know. I don't know how much credit we can take for that because certainly you know the JVM proved to be a generally useful primitive, and, and also certainly there's been an awful lot of interest in like deploying Python in some of these distributed settings, right? So. Um, I, whether we were a cause or just an early sign of that trend, I'm not totally sure. But nowadays, I think I was actually had a conversation about this with someone last week. And the feeling is that uh, nowadays, if you want contributors, then you'd have to have it in a JVM language if you were to start a project. I mean, that, you, could, that, you, could yeah, do, that, you could be idealistic and say, let's do this in C++ or something, but you may not get the contributors. Yeah, I, th I think that's probably true. Um, the 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 breadth of engineers who are educated in Java and the scale of the libraries that are available make it really hard to justify doing much else. So at what point? So so you you at what point did you kind of take a, a step back and 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 concentrate on your grad grad school studies? Well, you know, so I only I worked on Nutch full time for about one year. And for most of the, the, the time I was working on it, um, I was doing it as a side gig. So I was, I was hustling probably about 15 hours a week on the open source stuff and trying to be a grad student in the other time. And I would say it was around 06 or 07 when it became clear that uh, on the one hand, uh, Nutch and Hadoop were becoming very successful. The Yahoo engineers were contributing tons. You know, I would, uh, bugs would be discovered, fixed, and patched in between just the times that my, my academic life would allow me to log in, right? I mean, I, I couldn't keep up with the, the huge number of people who were contributing. So it kind of made sense on one hand that my ability to contribute meaningfully to Hadoop was uh, closing unless I became full-time. And it also became clear that my thesis was going to need full-time attention if it was ever going to get done. So I would say around 2000, although I had been a grad student for a number of years, it was around 06 or 07 that I uh, started wrapping down my day-to-day uh, engagement with, with Hadoop and started spending most of it on research. So another mutual friend of ours actually brought up that uh, you were also, you wrote the first lines of code for HBase as well, which is also, uh, I, also another Google paper. I, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, there, there were a few years of that. Um, yeah, I, I guess that is true. You know, I, I, the code for HBase has changed so substantially since, you know, and changed very rapidly after I wrote that stuff. And also, you know, uh, Michael, Michael Stack and those guys have done like such a, like a, a great and different job from what, um, I was originally involved in that. Although I, I wrote a bunch of lines there, you know, I, I kind of, um, it, it's more their project than, than mine, certainly. Right. Uh, right. Right. That, but, uh, but, uh, um, at that, at that point in time, when you, when you read that Google paper, you also realized oh, we could use something like this as well. Well, you know, at that point, whether it, whether that was actually, yes, I, I certainly, I recognize that, but also I had fallen into may, maybe a little bit of a bad habit of just reading the next Google paper. That, that was the last, that was right. the, uh, right. you know, that HBase turned out to be, to be, to be a great project. Um, but, uh, yeah, that was, that was the last time I would do that. Um, so, uh, so then you, uh, went to, went back, or I guess concentrated on your grad school studies and finished. And yeah. so what kind of academic uh, uh, research projects were you working on in grad school and, and after grad school? Were they related to this whole big data? Yeah, I, I guess you. I certainly kept a hand in the big data infrastructure stuff. So um, you know, inspired a lot by my work on, on Hadoop and so on. Um, I worked on a project that, for example, this one called uh, Manimal. The idea Manimal. was, Manimal. yeah, yeah. So Manimal, which was which was modeled explicitly by this this terrible '80s adventure show. Um, if, if members of your audience were involved in the production of Manimal, I'm sorry about that. It was not the best show ever, but anyway, it, it made an impression, I guess. Uh, Manimal was a, a project uh, which I did with uh, Chris Ray and and a student, um, Iman Jahani. The this was a project to 
analyze um, your MapReduce programs, and then try to figure out if you could apply database-style optimization. So you, when you're using a database, um, the SQL query language is you know, sufficiently transparent that the system can, can figure out semantically what you're actually trying to do. Uh, and then can say, oh, well, now it's time to use a, a B plus tree instead of my standard, just you know, index, my standard flat heap scan. Uh, we thought, well, that's still a great idea, but people seem to like writing this MapReduce stuff. And so let's kind of write an analyzer for your program that can make oh, it appropriate. Uh, and so from that, and so technically it worked great. Um, you know, you could uh, write a MapReduce program and you could get, you know, sometimes like an 11x speed up on on MapReduce with a very narrow change like in the in the compiler infrastructure and so tech from that angle it was a really great idea but from kind of a, a deployment and real world impact perspective it was kind of a terrible idea because we we dramatically underestimated people's like, interest and ability in writing something other than MapReduce programs you know nowadays I think the number of people who write MapReduce programs is actually pretty small like people are interested in these uh, you know whether it's uh, pig or hive or something like that uh, these higher level languages. But at the time we thought, oh, well, people clearly hate SQL. What they really love is um, writing in, in Java. And I got to say that that was a bad call. Oh, uh, yeah. Man, I mean, it's, uh, <laughs> I, I have a funny story about that. I mean, so when okay. uh, when uh, I started paying attention to MapReduce, right? So, and then I started looking at, okay, so uh, how do I join a couple of tables? And then you look at the amount of lines of code. <laughs> You had, yes. to, you had to write to do to do some really simple things. I'm going. These guys are crazy. Yeah, yeah. So you know, maybe yeah. You're you're totally right, and and that's that's why you know you're not running manimal dot. You're not running manimal binaries these days. But anyway. By the way, you you probably were kind of in an odd situation because when Hadoop and MapReduce first came out, I think there was some pushback from the academic database and data management community, right? Saying, oh man, what's this? Oh, yeah, right? yeah. It doesn't use SQL and this is a bad idea. No, no, you're right. Yeah, there was this... Um, and there was this, here you are trying to get into that club. <laughs> <laughs> there was this this paper by Mike, or this blog post by Mike Stonebreaker and David DeWitt. DeWitt. For, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. for people in your in the audience who may not know this are just like you know, giants in the, the academic database area. Uh, Mike just won the, the Turing Award recently. Um, the, they wrote this this uh, blog post called MapReduce, you know, a major step backwards, and they listed all the ways in which MapReduce was just like the worst idea you'd ever come across. And and I remember at the time really getting my dander up about it. Like, like I read this and then I strutted angrily around the house a little bit. Um, in retrospect, you know, they, they weren't totally right, but they were right about a lot of things. Right, so, right, right. Uh, you know, uh, and this high-level language idea um, was, in, in my mind, you know, a something that they definitely saw at the time and, and you know, it took me a, a couple years later. Yeah, yeah, and you can even see even all, many of the NoSQL engines have some version of SQL, some support, right? Yeah, that's right. I think, I think it's, you know, the field is, has generally come to that conclusion. Granted, Stonebreaker and DeWitt came to that conclusion a long time ago. It just took the rest of us to get around to it. Right, right, right. Um, so then, uh, so you moved to Michigan. Yep. Um, and basically just uh, went back to just pure academic research at that point? Yeah, well, so, you know, in the, although although that stuff was was a part of, so that Manimal paper was done you know, the, in the first year that I came to Michigan as a professor. When I was in grad school, I also, um, my, the main part of my research was on something called information extraction, which was, you know, an effort to um, analyze unstructured data sources, like, you know, unstructured general purpose text or like tables that you would find online and then try to create a structured version of it. Um, some of that work uh, I did while I was an intern at Google. And in fact, uh, you know, kind of a part of my thesis, which was called uh, Web Tables, um, is now, and which I do with a number of people there, um, including um, this guy, Alon Halevi, who is a professor at Washington, is now has been at Google for some time. So we did this project called Web Tables, which tried to identify HTML tables on the web and then figure out which of them actually are used to communicate relational data. So you know, most tables on the web are used to communicate things like uh, calendars or to-do lists or just used for layout. But uh, about 1% of them at the time were used to actually communicate something that you might put into a, a database table. And so we had this idea that what you should do is take a huge crawl of the web. And this is where being an intern at Google turned out to be very handy because they had a lot of these web crawls hanging around the house. Write a few classifiers that could you know, largely automatically 
automatically figure out which of these tables are being used for layout or other purposes and which are actually being used for relational data. And then once you do, then you can use some other machine learning tricks to try to recover the structure of it. So for example, you could try to identify, is the first line of this table being used to label the columns or is it just another data element? Um, and you could try to figure out typing for, for each of the columns. Now, these columns are just HTML tables. They don't have types in the way that programming languages or um, relational databases do, but they had implicit types. You know, the author of them thought oftentimes that there was a type, and you could figure this out. You could see, like, do they tend to use all integers in this column or all dates uh, and so on? And, and that let us do uh, a few fun things with the resulting data set. In particular, if you looked at just the schema information, you know, the schema is the description of what columns make up the database table. We had some absurd quantity of schemas. Um, I don't remember the number off the top of my head, but I, I believe it was in the millions. It's in the academic paper uh, that you can read. And that's enough to do certain kinds of... And, I, and I'm sure Google yeah. has technology that does this in production now, right? So. Well, you know, I, I don't have any, I don't uh, have I mean, any it seems of, like that's uh, relationship a lot, with anymore. There's a, yeah, lot of, you, there's a lot of in, rich information if you can do Yeah, uh, you, can, do you, can find, you can find it in certain web searches. If you, they, they've deployed it to some extent now. So if you do certain web searches and you see like a, a couple tuples show up in the, like in the snippet, instead of just a text snippet, they might have the first row or two of a table. Uh, that appears to be something uh, inspired by web tables. So, so that's, uh, that shows up in certain kinds of like, uh, you know, structured quantitative hey, uh, theories. By the way, this reminds me, uh, since you were uh, into like uh, implementing Google infrastructure on the outside, that short amount of time you were in the inside, did you get any ideas of other infrastructure elements that you could well, implement on the outside? <laughs> well, you know, first of all, that would be kind of frowned upon. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. But 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 more than that, no, I um I you know I have to say like I had a great gig at Google. Like um the people were nice. Like I uh, I had basically carte blanche to work on uh, your research projects, and and in fact. Um, something kind of interesting happened. I don't know if the following would be kind of logistically possible at Google anymore, but for a while, um, I was working at a different physical location than where my, where my day-to-day kind of intellectual manager was, you know, the guy who was interested in my project. And so they said, well, you know, kind of for business reasons, you need a local manager too. Um, this guy wasn't someone I did work with, but he was there to like sign expense reports and so on. So, uh, that was fine. That worked for a few months. And then I went on a business trip or something, and I I, I had like a, a few small expenses that I, I wanted this guy to approve. So I, I sent him an email, and it turned out that he had left the company about a month earlier, and I didn't know. I didn't know, right? We didn't work with each other, so there was not really any reason that I would know. I we didn't, I didn't sit next to him, and so I, I kind of wandered blindly around the company for a while, trying to figure out who could get my expense report signed, because in principle, no one had the authority to do it. And I, I eventually went to HR, and they realized that through some flaw in the computer system, I was a disconnected node in the org chart, that in <laughs> principle, I could have gone years just drawing a salary and never actually showing up for work, and the system <laughs> might not have caught me. So you know, I think, I think in the movie Office Space, this is actually a plot point. You know, some guy who works there for years, and you know, he should have been fired a long time ago. I... If only I hadn't gone to get this expense report signed, that could have been me. Uh, so, you know, there's, a, there's an alternate reality in which I didn't go get to this professor gig, but in fact, I'm still kind of phoning in my, my job at Google. But they, they probably would have figured it out eventually. By the way, uh, this uh, web tables uh, gives us a great excuse to segue to what you're doing now, which is uh, this new startup with a mutual friend of ours, Chris Ray. And uh, full disclosure to the audience, I'm an advisor to the startup. And it's called clearcutanalytics.com. Yeah, um, sure. So um, maybe you can describe a little bit what uh, ClearCut does. Yeah, sure. So you know, ClearCut um, is, is the commercialization of a project um, that Chris has been working on for a number of years uh, that, and that I started contributing to maybe about a year and a half ago, which is called Deep Dive. Uh, deep dive is another mechanism for information extraction. This, this area as a, an in area of academic interest has been around at least since the early nineties. And, but, but deep dive to me is, is really a remarkable project. Uh, and it's remarkable, uh, substantially because of its, uh, ability to get structured data out of unstructured information at very high accuracy. So, you know, it's, it's, I, and a lot of other people have worked for a long time on, taking the information embedded in a, in a piece of natural language text, like consider, say, the notes that your doctor might take 
um, after you go in for an, uh, uh, an appointment or think about, um, say, the information embedded in a scientific paper. Well, there's a, a lot of information in those documents that's essentially structured. You know, like you might say something like, um, show me the average, uh, or how do I say this? Show me the average amount of medicine X that's been prescribed uh, over the last you know, year by a specific doctor. Or show me all the people who um, had back pain after taking a certain kind of medicine. Those are queries that you could easily write in SQL or in MapReduce if you wanted, but probably SQL. Um, if only you had a table whose structure could support it, right? Unfortunately, so it's kind of similar to uh, uh, that earlier project you described in many ways, WebTable, where you take web pages and uh, you extract, uh, you convert them into structured uh, information, yeah. right? So. Yeah, that's absolutely right. It, it's it's all kind of in a in the same intellectual vein, and you know, lots of people have been working on this, uh, both in industry and the university, uh, for a, a number of years. But you said what separates this particular project, Deep Dive, is accuracy. Yeah, so so Deep Dive is able to get accuracy, and it's now been shown on a number of projects that's competitive with human beings on a lot of tasks. So you know, human beings, if you ask them to read a document and then populate a table with the information that they find in that document, uh, they won't be perfect at it, right? There will be some pieces of information that they uh, incorrectly interpret, like they might see a, a height and write it down as a width. Now, that seems impossible given height and width, but you can imagine that's quite possible for more technical uh, data. Or they there might be a fact in the uh, paper or in the text that they miss because they're scanning the document quickly or something like that. And um, when you look at these two measures, which in you know, scientific terms are called precision and recall, um, deep dive is able to get you know, levels of precision and recall on these tasks that, that are quite beyond uh, what past information extraction projects have been able to obtain. And when you have that, then it means there's a lot of interesting applications that you can apply it to. Right. So going to your example, right? So I have a pile of doctor notes. Yeah. Um, now, deep dive isn't going to miraculously turn that into structured information. I imagine there's some notion of uh, uh, training involved. Uh, there you're, is. So, you're so going to use machine learning, in other words, to do this, right? Right. So, so under the covers, you know, we use statistical methods just like everyone else, right? Um, and there's some training. The, the emphasis in deep dive is a little bit different from a lot of machine learning projects uh, in a few different ways. First of all, from the user's point of view, in many ways, it doesn't look like a machine learning project because we try to put forward the idea that the emphasis is on features rather than the machine learning internals, right? We want the user to focus as much as possible on getting high accuracy by writing great features and not uh, trying to muck with the, you know, the guts of the internal so algorithm. So when you say write features, oh, yeah, uh, let me, these, let are me... do, these are domain experts and uh, they're writing small programs? Yes. Yeah, let me be clear about that. So you know, in, in machine learning, there's a few different steps of getting a, a high-quality result. One, of course, is the statistical algorithm that can take a lot of pieces of information along with a training set and try to figure out what's the way to the, the best way to weigh those potentially competing sources of evidence in order to make conclusions that are consistent with the training set. And the idea is, if I see examples in the future that resemble the ones that I saw in the past, then I now know the correct weights on, the, on that evidence to apply, and I'll come up with good answers in the future. The, but you know, that, and that, that internals of you know, what is the best way to um, come up with the weighing of evidence, what's the best way to kind of model that evidence, that's the core of what a lot of the kind of statistical and machine learning revolution of the last few decades has been about. Um, one thing that, on, one quality of that, that until very recently has been not focused on very intensively is the creation of those features themselves. So these are small little pieces of information that embody something that is relevant to a real world task. So to take an extremely crude example, if you were writing a search engine um, and you're trying to figure out uh, how relevant is my search query to this, this page, you might say, well, if the search query has a hit on that page and the page is in bold type, that means the that word is, or excuse me, the text is in bold type. That means that word's extra important. And so a hit on bold type text is worth more than a, a hit on you know some other kind of text. And 
If you look at a lot of machine learning projects that have been super successful, like IBM's Watson or Google's core search engine ranking algorithm, what you see is that the machine learning is important. Like you need a, an internal mechanism that is, you know, that's solid. But the thing that really makes a difference is the agglomeration of lots of good features. Right. And so but if I you want, they call that the unreasonable effectiveness of data. <laughs> that's true. The, you, you need a lot of data um, for a bunch of different reasons, but you also need the you also need the insight to say like what parts of that data are are most useful, right? But it's I, not I, I, I guess Mike. So my question is: so going back to that example, right? So I have a pile of doctor's notes. Yeah. So how does how does deep dive work for me? I'm a doctor. Do I have to give you a few examples of how to extract information? Let's say, let's say that your goal was to extract all the pharmaceuticals mentioned in this data, in, right. in this text, right. okay? What are some, if you were just you know, training like a, a naive human being to, an extremely naive human being to find examples, uh, what would you do? You might say, well, first of all, um, the, these are probably capitalized, maybe not all the time, but capitalization would certainly give you a clue. Um, it's probably not a word in the dictionary. There, if I say, prescribed right in front of that word that is another piece of evidence that it may be a, a pharmaceutical and if it has some kind of crazy name like uh you know crelexa like there, there are these certain linguistic patterns that seem to be very popular among pharmaceuticals if you detect one of those in the word that's another bit of evidence that that maybe it's a pharmaceutical so you're describing so, basically a set of rules yet you can think of features as uh, they are features are generally you know, rules or just deterministic code right like small programs often written in python that basically return like does you can think of it in its in its basic form as like a true or false like here's a test i'm performing you know does is the word to the left prescribed here's another test i'm performing is this word capitalized you can think of a huge number of those yes or no tests and those tests would be written they could be written in you know python or whatever language you want so you start basically it sounds like you start out with some domain expert Yep. And then this domain expert will basically write down a set of rules. Yep. And that and that's the seed for deep dive. Well, I, I wouldn't say it that way because that that uh, there are some rule based systems that that try to sort of pile one rule on top of another to try to get good extractions, and and that's not the way it works. So so these rule based approaches they can work really effectively if you. But they, they tend to have kind of a ceiling to how effective they are. Meaning, if I was trying to write um, a regular expression to extract pharmaceuticals, I could probably write one that would actually be very effective. You would have pretty good accuracy, might get you know, fairly high recall. The second one that I write might be good, but not quite as good. I mean, I've lopped off the easy case. Now I'm going to go for a somewhat harder case. And what you view and what you see in practice is that these rule-based mechanisms, you they do a great job at tackling the easy cases, but the you get very diminishing returns with each additional rule that you write. The, the distinction between writing these rules and writing features is that the features are then probabilistically combined by the training procedure. So right. the okay. machine learning mechanism figures out like how important is each, each of these rules? When can I ignore one? When should I pay attention to the other? And that's where kind of the, the probabilistic machinery and the role of the training data comes in. So we, so your our working example has been unstructured text. So what other types of data sets is Deep Dive good for? So you know the the machinery has been built to incorporate not just text but also tables and images. You know that stuff. Uh, there has been some published work on the tables. The images stuff is is being worked on, but is not yet uh, really sort of published in an academic or deployed in an academic way. But is you know, certainly something that we're we're working on. Um, the certainly most of the successes to date have been on text, but we recognize that you know documents and these unstructured formats are very heterogeneous. There's often cases when you need to incorporate information from multiple sources, not just text, but also the uh, tables involved in order to get good conclusions. Um, Chris, before I joined the project, um, he and some collaborators worked on a really interesting project to extract data from the paleontology scientific literature. And we're very effective at this. And oftentimes when you're getting facts from, paleont from paleontology papers, what you want to extract is something like, I found uh, a certain organism at a certain location at a certain point in geologic time. 
In order to get that triple, you can imagine that's maybe three columns in the database you're populating. In order to get that, what you really need is to incorporate some clues from the text, some clues from the caption of an image, some clues from uh, a table of data. Uh, you need all of those sources of evidence. And the guts of uh, Deep Dive is based on a method that's able to incorporate these disparate sources of evidence. Oh, I see. So, so, it's, so in that particular working example, it's the caption of the image, not the image itself. Right. It could, well, it could be well, I, it could be the image itself. In, in that particular example, I don't believe the, uh, they did image processing per se. Um, I, I was not an author on that paper, so I don't know totally for sure. Um, however, there's lots of different sources of evidence. The image is important, but it's only one of many sources. Right, right, right. right. Uh, yeah, so, so you know, the, the, the area that we've been applying, uh, or that I've personally been most involved in applying deep dive, has been kind of a surprising one, one that I didn't know much about until about a year ago, um, and one that you don't hear a lot about when it comes to these data projects, which is that of uh, human trafficking. Um, this is this is kind of a very you know surprisingly gr grim topic for uh, you know data management, machine learning kind of stuff, um, but it's been really interesting from a uh, kind of impact point of view. So what's the, what, what's the data source? The data source um, is crawl. So people who are trafficked um, are often channeled into the sex trade, and of course you know the like a lot of other forms of commerce. Um, the advertisements for the sex trade oh, are now on, are now online. Online, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, what you can do is analyze large numbers of advertisements and try to detect something about the person being involved. So, uh, to give you an example, you might consider something like um, if the person is advertising particularly risky services or is underpricing their services substantially, that might suggest that um, they are not the one doing the pricing. Uh, and so that might give you a little bit of evidence that the person in that advertisement uh, was doing this against their will. And I think I, I may have read some, uh, was there press coverage after you guys uh, uh, did this project? Yeah, this is part of a, a larger project called DARPA Memex, um, which has gotten a lot of press coverage in the last few months. There was a 60 Minutes piece about it a couple months ago, and there's been articles in other forums as well. Interesting. So... Uh, does, does Deep Dive, the core technology, does it scale? Is it distributed? Yeah. So, so there, well, well, it's scale. It depends on what you mean. So one of the, one of the, the, the short answer is yes, it does scale. The, the thing that some people will hear when they hear that we do probabilistic inference, they will, that in particular will make people wonder if it scales well, because traditionally there have been these mechanisms, you know, the largely called graphical models, where um, that can obtain very high accuracy, but have been difficult to um, use at large scale because the probabilistic inference task is so computationally demanding. Um, there were a few core papers um, from Chris and his group uh, that it came out and formed kind of the underpinnings of the training procedure for deep dive, and through a number of different mechanisms. Um, it's able to get you know, uh, probabilistic sampling rates substantially, substantially higher than past efforts. And so that has really enabled the focus on features and the focus on the uh, developer in getting high quality extractions. So while we talk about your deep dive focusing on bringing the features first and really allowing the user of deep dive to focus on like what is the piece of information that will most improve my extractions. The reason that that's possible is a probabilistic inference core that can go to very, very large numbers of variables, more, more than, than previous efforts have been able to obtain. So what is the relationship between clear cut and deep dive? In other words, uh, is uh, deep, deep dive is open source. It's out there if you want to download yep. it. But yep. uh, is clear cut going to maintain deep dive as, a, as an open source project or just forking it and moving on and uh, doing something else? No, well, we certainly don't intend on forking it. So, so Deep Dive is an ongoing academic project um, with academic users and novel scientific contributions uh, being made all the time to it. So you can, it's open source and you can watch it get better uh, from people you know, in the academy. Uh, ClearCut is really focused on identifying commercial applications of Deep Dive and the extraction technology. So, um, Although so I would imagine I would imagine there will be extra tooling to make it easier to deploy and use and all of that good stuff. That that is true. We are focusing on those things, but it's also true 
that you know we're focusing uh, a lot on building the applications, actually you know, the vertical applications, the vertical applications. Uh, of these things, rather than um, general purpose tools to improve deep dive. You know, improving deep dive is great. Like that's that is something that in my academic life uh, is one of the the projects that I'm working on, but. In the commercial world, we're really focusing on like what are the applications of deep dive that can really be uh, most productive. So besides ClearCut and the folks at Stanford and I guess your group in Michigan, who else has been uh, contributing to deep dive? Um, I know we've you know, a lot of the people working on deep dive have been um, users of the system. So I know that there's a number of people, as I mentioned, in the paleontology area who have been serious contributors to have the extractors around deep dive. Um, so deep dive has both an infrastructure component, features, uh, you know, there's a, a different way, a number of different ways of contributing code. Um, the engagements to date, there's a, a large group of people at Stanford who contribute code to the infrastructure. And then there's a lot of people who also contribute to the applications. I, I in my engagements with it, have been really focused on the applications and the tooling around uh, these things. So, so you're kind of in a unique situation in that uh, you have experience in both industry and academia. So uh, I wanted to pick your brain about uh, just uh, the two sides of computer science, I guess, or, or computer engineering, right? So, uh, yeah, yeah. So for one thing, I mean, you know, I mean, at least in the big data space, many of the tools uh, out out in uh, production in industry came from industry, right? So not not from academia, and so that's right. And in fact, I don't even know how many computer science professors will know how to teach you how to use Kafka or Cassandra or any of these things. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's that's very possible. Yeah, I mean, those things are only on the most cutting edge of kind of most syllabus syllabi. So like then, you, how does so? How do you reconcile, uh, you know, the fact that uh, maybe the people in academia aren't teaching kind of the current skills? Well, you know, I to some extent, you, I think their answer to that would be that that's not totally our job. That although we want people to have relevant skills when they graduate, it's also our job to teach the the fundamentals so that you know right, when the, right. the when the tech changes people will understand it and I, and I'm sympathetic to that argument right like there's there's a lot in the standard database or data management course that even if the tooling is you know not exactly what would get you hired the fastest like it's still important to learn and you know maybe if if that kind of uh, education had been around um, if we'd done a better job of that, maybe you know, some of this back and forth with the languages, uh, we could have saved a year or two in implementing that stuff okay, with a higher level languages in the data management area. Um, so I'm, I'm sympathetic, sympathetic to that in some, to some extent. I, I do think that there's a lot more room in university courses for uh, some of these new systems, some of which are doing something very interesting. You know, one thing that I think was underappreciated by the original Google MapReduce work as a, on the intellectual side is the extent to which it focused on partial partial query recovery uh, in the face of failure. It, it, it was commonplace because most queries were not long-lasting right. um, in academic settings. Most work would simply say, hey, if the, if the distributed system fails or fails partially, then we're going to restart the query. And if you're running a 24-hour MapReduce job, then that's not really feasible. Right. And right. so you know, one thing that I think you can see reflected in modern research is that partial recovery is really important. And that's something where, like, if you are looking for an excuse, I don't think you need an excuse to put MapReduce or these other new systems into your, you know, your university curriculum. But if you're looking for an excuse, that that is the the a great one. Like that that had a serious intellectual impact. Um, Actually, you and, know, you know, one topic that's really big out in industry now, which was big in academia maybe, I don't know, eight years ago, is yeah. uh, stream processing. Particularly, yeah, particularly now with the uh, maturation of some of these important frameworks like Kafka, Spark Streaming, yep, and, that's and right. things like that. But it seems like uh, the uh, that has fallen out of fashion in academia. I mean, a lot of the academic research in streaming took place probably in the 2004-2005 when uh, companies were spinning out of Berkeley and MIT and yeah, yeah. I mean, it's certainly, it's certainly like people are still doing work on it. But you're right; like it's, it's no longer considered a hot topic. Yeah. Whereas uh, I, I can tell you, at least uh, someone who runs large conferences, that uh, people can't get enough of of, uh, yeah. <laughs> of uh, stream processing. 
Yeah, yeah, that's that's very interesting. Huh. Okay. Yeah, and um, and, the, and the fact that you know, so to me, uh, that means probably uh, it's not being taught. Uh, it's not it's not being emphasized as much in current uh, uh, universities. You know, I I would say that the stream like it's still taught like at the graduate level. Um, I mean, it, I don't only pretty adventurous uh, undergrad classes would ever get to the stream stuff, but certainly it's one of the standard topics I would cover in a graduate class. Whether I would recommend my students do research in it, uh, you know, it, it's not really the kind of research that I do. Um, it, it's a legitimate topic, certainly, but it's not like the the one that everyone is is jumping over themselves to to do right now. And then, of course, now uh, a lot of universities have popped on into the whole data science. Yeah, that's uh, right, thing, that, right? In, so. in, including Michigan. Like we, Michigan. We, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I actually was in a was in a conference. I happened to be with a bunch of academics, and someone said, "You know, all we have to do is put data science in the course title, and it automatically is uh, uh, full." <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know. I mean, like there, there's a. I, there's like a cynical and a non-cynical way of taking that, right? Like the, the cynical way is like, yeah, you know, trends come and go and, and we are probably somewhere in this, you know, on the upper slope of the hype cycle. I, you know, I always cite, and it's not a, it's not a good comparison. I always cite that when I uh, was in grad school, the trend was financial engineering, right? So that was, everyone had a master's <laughs> in financial engineering. Yeah. <laughs> but data science seems a lot more generic, more broadly applicable, not tied to one industry. Yeah, I, I think that's I think that's true. You know, I mean, certainly, like you, you can say that there's there's kind of a a slightly cynical take on it, which is like, oh, this is what what employers want to see, and so that's what like we should do right now. Uh, that's not totally cynical. I mean, we we should support like what our students need in order to be successful in life, but you should also be guided by like what's you know intellectually important rather than just uh, uh, what the, the, what the, the default strategy is. seems to be of universities. Let's set up a data science institute, yeah, and anyone you know, related to data. Let's put them in this institute. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, like the the important thing about it, and I think the reason that like the students are getting so excited about it is like you. It's genuinely true. You can make a huge impact across a ton of different fields with the tools and the techniques that we have right now. I mean, the if right. you had told me that even three or four years ago, I hey the the things you're doing now, you're going to use the same methods and you can make an impact on human trafficking. That I I don't know if I would have believed that, but but that's that's been what the last year of our lives uh, has been, and so and you see that in across a lot of different fields, like whether it's medicine or different parts of the social sciences. Uh, one of my students is working on this uh, tool to do various kinds of economic forecasting, you know, from Twitter and other sources, and I get you know, it. We see a road where that's a genuinely useful tool for managing the economy, like. The, the techniques that you would learn in one of these data science programs really gives you, um, it, it's wide open in so many areas. I can see if you were a student deciding what to do, I, that yeah, would be it, extremely it, appealing. It seems like it's going to change actually not just, uh, I mean, uh, I think uh, computer science, statistics, you know, the, those disciplines, but also kind of even the humanities, right? So. Oh yeah, I think so. I I think you know, I my social take is, sciences and stuff. My my take is the next five years, it's going to have its biggest impact in the social sciences. I, I think it's going to be uh you know, the compu like the the part of statistics that's more computer science, like what you would get in a data science program versus a st statistics program. Like the a lot of the social scientists are already very quantitative, but I think they're going to end up being programmers as well. I, I think it's going to sweep through a lot of social science in the next few years. You know, to be honest, I think what's missing with many of these data science programs is that uh, uh, it seems like there's a heavy emphasis on statistics and machine learning, but it's the infrastructure piece which is really uh, critical and makes you employable that's missing in many of these programs. You know, I I think you're, you're certainly right. Like the infrastructure part, you're becoming acquainted with the tools and deploying it. Although that that is a challenge, although I think it's going down, I think it's getting better rather than worse, just because of the the ability of like uh, cloud based tools and Docker, some of these Docker, yeah, Docker and like some of these notebook style things that yet yeah, now you don't even have to install anymore; you can just run on the cloud. Uh, so I think the I think the infrastructure part is getting better. What the the thing that I, I find most kind of concerning about these programs, including including the one that I I help with, is that a lot of the people in industry and elsewhere have much better data sets or insight into workloads. Like, um, right, right. if you don't have a fantastic data set, there's just a limit to what you can do. Right. And so um, I think that's where, if you're looking to set up one of these data science programs, 
a little bit of hustle in getting partners on data sets will probably pay off big. Yeah, yeah. And to be honest, uh, in my conversations with academics uh, who are involved with this thing, uh, you know, like I said, the focus is on machine learning and statistics. But I'm thinking, well, you know, I mean, by the time in industry, by the time I get to that step, I'm doing somersaults, man. I've done all the data cleaning <laughs> and preparation. You know what well, I mean? The, the kinds of things that you described uh, that you guys have to do with uh, deep dive, just uh, feature extraction and all. Well, that. it's not. Listen, the, the cleaning never goes away. Yeah, the, the, those problems are with us all the time. The data janitor stuff is, is around. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, that's that's the bulk of what you do. Really? Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, anyway, but, so uh, what's your status now? And so are you, uh, uh, you're doing clear, clear cut for the next year full time? Is that? Well, so I, I still am running my research group at Michigan. I've got uh, a bunch of great students working on you know, information extraction or feature engineering or some of these economics parts. Um, and and uh, they're all doing very well. I'm, I'm very happy with like the, the ongoing research that my, my lab is putting out. Um, but I'm also taking a break from teaching and some other obligations in order to focus heavily on ClearCut. So, um, so we you're are... Ba- you're back in the Bay Area for now? I'm, I'm, I'm spending a lot of time on planes. Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You're, you're, go- you're <laughs> so, just going back. Chris Ray yeah. hasn't convinced you to move yet, huh? Uh, we- <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, 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 I tell everyone like... The summer is the wrong time to ask that question. Ask me on February twenty eighth when uh, when there's three feet of snow in my front yard, and then 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 ask me the question. That'll, that'll be an easier sell. Right, right, um, right, right. But uh, yeah, so we're going back and forth. You know, ClearCut is in super stealth mode. I guess you can call it stealth mode. If you don't have a website, I guess it's stealth mode, right? Right. Um, but on the other hand, and we're very small. But on the other hand, um, you know, we have our first two customers, and and it's going really well. So you, know, uh, I, I couldn't be happier with the progress, even uh, though it's to be to be more precise. They do have a website, clearcutanalytics.com, but it redirects to the deep dive project. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, yeah, that's, so, that's the that's the clever business sense we have. At least we have the domain name. <laughs> so, uh, in closing, Mike, so Hadoop is ten years old. Uh, what were what were you guys thinking? Was this uh, was this thing really going to last ten years when you first started writing the li- first lines of code? You know, I, and that I, it would take over uh, enterprises and industry in this manner. You know, I guess on, on the one hand, like obviously, I never would have thought that. Like, um, you know, I I would see something like, oh god, this bug has to get fixed. It's never going to work. So on the one hand, like in the in the short term, like it looked like it was impossible in many ways that it could work. On the other hand, I always thought like something, it had to happen. Like it was used, the, the techniques were useful enough that I knew they would get broad acceptance. It, it, the surprising thing to me is that it happened through Hadoop rather than some other mechanism. Some other mechanism. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but, the, but you know, the, the experience with Nutch that really helped was you know, when we saw those, those original papers, I, it was clear to me like that, that was the right way to do it and it would have very broad application. Like that that I never really had any question in my mind about. I am kind of surprised it was it was you know code that we wrote and eventually other many other people rewrote um, that that eventually did the trick. Well, this has been great. Thank you for uh, taking the time to talk to me. Oh, thanks, Ben. Hey, I, I should mention one other thing with my company hat on. You know, although we're in stealth mode, we are hiring like everyone else. So yes, send, shoot, yes. yeah, shoot me a note if you have a resume and you love information extraction. Uh, it, it would be great to talk. I highly recommend you talk to them, too. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Mike. All right. Fantastic. Thanks a lot, Ben. You can follow Mike Caffarella on Twitter, at Mike Caffarella. Thank you for joining us. If you like the show, you can subscribe through iTunes or Stitcher or TuneIn.com or SoundCloud and never miss an episode.